Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. All right, well, good morning. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 3. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 20, as we are continuing going through our series, just going verse by verse through the book of Mark. And as always, if you don't have your Bible or forgot your Bible, you can always grab a Bible out in the lobby, uh, as well as we'll have the scriptures up on the screen as well. And as you are turning there in your Bibles, I want you to think back to a time that you had to try out for a team. Okay, think back if you've ever had a time in your past, whether it was, you know, in school, trying out for a sports team. I I want you to think about that. Maybe if you didn't play sports, think about a time that you auditioned. Like you say you were auditioning for a play or you were trying out for a band or the choir or something like that. Think back to that time, how you felt before you were going to audition. And if you can't relate to those, a tryout or an audition, think about like a job interview, okay? Think about that time that you were preparing to go in for a job interview. Think about the emotions and just how you felt going into that. You probably felt a little nervous, right? I mean, there's probably some anxiety and some nerves in that. You wanted to perform your best. You wanted to put your best foot forward and kind of show that you were deserving of being part of that team or that you were deserving of being a part of uh, getting that job or being a part of that play. Okay, so set, set those emotions, set that mental image aside now, okay? We're going to come back to that in a second. Set it aside. I want you to imagine something else. Imagine that you are an orphan. Imagine you have no parents, you are living in an orphanage, and you desperately desire to be part of a family. And one day, a loving couple walks into the orphanage, and not because of anything that you have done, not because of anything you've accomplished, not because of anything that you've performed, they decide to adopt you into their family. And now all that they have is now yours. And church, our passage this morning, it's going to clear up a few things for us, okay? Because you see, being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, the Bible says, is like being adopted into a family. It's like being adopted into a family. Being a Christian, you have been adopted into a family. And yet, and yet... The sad reality is that many Christians live like they are trying out for a team or interviewing for a job. They live joyless lives trying to prove themselves worthy of acceptance instead of living joyfully out of the acceptance they have already received in Christ and the good gospel of grace. And so in our passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus, uh, a few things here. We're going to see Jesus redefine who our ultimate family is, okay? Jesus is going to redefine who our ultimate family is. We're going to see what he accomplished to create this family. And then we're going to see the forgiveness and the acceptance we can enjoy as we now live in this new family, okay? You guys ready? We ready? Give me a head nod. Give me uh uh-huh. Give me amen. All right, let's go. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now skip down to verse 31. Mark 3, verse 31. We're going to come back to the other verses in a second. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called. 
And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you? And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I know we don't talk very often about Jesus' earthly family, okay? And, and we know that Jesus, he is the, the Son of God, the eternally existing, okay, is the second person of the Trinity. But when he came to earth, when, when the Son of God came to earth, put on flesh, he was born as a baby. He was born into a biological family. And so he had a mother, and he had an adopted father, Joseph. And Mary and Joseph, after they had Jesus, went on to have other children, and so Jesus has brothers and sisters, and here his family comes to get him because they're, they're hearing about all that's going on. They're hearing about he's, he's all teaching these, these crowds, he's performing miracles, and they're concerned about him. And they're probably even a little concerned about the family reputation as well. And so they come to get him because they think he's out of his mind. Jesus has lost it. He's crazy. Now, after the resurrection, many of his family does put their faith in him. They trust, they see him for who he really is. But at this time, they think, man, he's lost it. He's out of his mind. So here's a little nugget of encouragement, okay? This one's for free this morning. It's not the main point. Here's a nugget of encouragement for you. If your family thinks you're crazy, hey, Jesus understands, okay? Jesus, if your family, and I know most of you, most of your families do think you're a little crazy, okay? Uh, but if that's the case, Jesus understands. His family thought he was crazy as well, okay? And when those around him hear that his family is outside, they tell Jesus that his family's here to see him. And what does Jesus say? Look verse 31, or 33. What does Jesus say? And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now listen, Jesus is not saying that his biological family doesn't matter. Okay? He's not saying that. He's not saying that your biological family doesn't matter. No, not at all. That's not his message at all. And we know from the rest of Scripture that we are by no means to neglect our biological families and the responsibilities that we have to them. For example, 1 Timothy 5.8. 1 Timothy 5.8, it says this. It says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. When we become a Christian, we are by no means to neglect our family or our responsibilities to our family. No, not at all. But what Jesus is saying, he's not saying that he doesn't care about his biological family, but what he's saying is that there is another family. There is an ultimate family. There is another family that he is calling people to. And this family that he is creating is an everlasting family. It's a forever family. It's a family that's not going to be determined by your DNA or your race or your ethnicity or your class, but it is a family that God is creating through the work of Christ. And let me share with you a passage from Galatians 4, 4 through 5. We're going to come back to it a couple times. You can stay in Mark, but just hear these words from Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
Church, what a beautiful truth that is. That we have been adopted into the family of God. We are adopted sons and daughters of the king. Now, I know everyone's background is a little different here, okay? And I, I'm sure when I talk about family, that there are probably some mixed emotions amongst us, all right? And some mixed memories and feelings when we talk about family. Because some of you, when I talk about family, you might get kind of all the warm, fuzzy, feel-good feelings, right? Maybe you had a great growing up experience. You just had a great uh, home life and family life. But some of you, when I talk about family, might start to get a little upset, might start to feel a little bit of hurt, might start to, to kind of feel that rooting up of some bitterness in you and some animosity towards your family. Maybe, it, maybe talking about family discourages you a little bit because of some hurt that you have in the past about your family. And maybe some of you were abused or neglected or uncared for. And maybe your family never gave you the love and the support that you were looking for. Some of you, when we talk about family, you have negative thoughts because maybe you haven't gotten married and you really wanted to get married. Or maybe you did get married and it's way different than you thought it would be. Maybe you haven't had kids, but you really want to have kids. Maybe you did have kids, but it wasn't the timing and the way that you planned and thought it was all going to happen. And some of you might have some undealt with hurt and bitterness because you really wanted a loving and affirming dad, but your dad did not give you the love and affirmation you desired. And maybe some of you have some resentment in your heart when I bring up family because you really wanted a caring and compassionate mom, but your mom did not give you the care or compassion you wanted. And the reason I bring up these thoughts and disappointments and feelings, I'm not just trying to stir up a bunch of stuff for no reason, okay? The reason I'm bringing up these thoughts and some of your past feelings about your family is because for us to fully enjoy being a part of the family of God, for us to fully embrace and enjoy being a part of the family of God, we are going to first have to expose the idolatry of family in our hearts, for us to enjoy the family of God, we are going to first have to expose the idolatry of family in our hearts. Now, let's talk about idolatry, okay? What is an idol? Idols are good things that we make ultimate things. They're good things, like family, and we make them ultimate things. Idols are things that we are treasuring more than we are treasuring Christ. And some of us have treasured being a husband or being a wife more than we've treasured Christ. Some of us have treasured being a father or being a mother or being a grandparent more than we have treasured Christ. And we're in a season right now where we just celebrated Mother's Day, right? And now in a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate Father's Day. And listen, those are good things to celebrate. There's nothing wrong with celebrating those. The call to be a mother is a good calling. The call to be a father is a good calling. And we should celebrate, honor, and thank those who have been called to those things. And on Father's Day, man, I just, I want this place to just smell of bacon and just, you know, just those goods. I'm just going to drop some hints like that over the next couple of weeks. We'll see what happens on Father's Day, okay? But those are good things to honor and celebrate, okay? But listen, the call to be a mother and the call to be a father 
is not your ultimate calling. It's not your ultimate calling. That's not the pinnacle of what it means to be a Christian that we're all trying to get to. Your ultimate calling is to Christ. Your ultimate calling is to follow Jesus, and he will call some of his followers to be a mother, and he will call some of his followers to be a father, but your ultimate calling is to follow Christ. And some of us probably need to repent right now of finding our identity, our security, our purpose, and our acceptance in our family and the role we play in it. Some of us need to repent that we have been finding our identity, our security, our purpose, and our acceptance in our family because those things should ultimately be found in Christ. And listen, whatever your family situation has been in the past, whatever it currently is right now, and whatever it's going to be in the future, I can tell you this. If your family is what you are ultimately looking to, to find your identity, your security, your purpose, and your acceptance, it will fail you. It will fail you. Your biological family at times will fail you, disappoint you, discourage you, because family makes a crummy God. Family makes a crummy God. It won't fulfill the expectations you're putting on it. If you're looking to your family or if you're looking to a certain relationship, a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, if you're looking to that to find your identity and your security and your acceptance and your purpose, then you will always be disappointed, discouraged, bitter, and frustrated with the thought of family, and there will always be a strain on those relationships. Family makes a crummy God. But church, I've got some good news this morning. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, which I read earlier, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There is a forever family that we have been adopted into. Could it be that our biological families are pointing us to something better? They are pointing us to something that is going to be everlasting. They are pointing us to something that is eternal. And it is going to be a family whose father is infinitely perfect and glorious and loving, who adopts us into the family, not because of our merit or our resumes or our performance, but because of his infinite love, grace, and mercy. And could it be that the Spirit of God that is working in our hearts through his people, could it be that it is even working through our biological families, both the good and the bad, to prepare us to live for eternity with our forever family? J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he writes this. He says, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways. But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. He continues, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, is to be a child of God. 
And when you find your identity, your security, your purpose, and your acceptance in being a child of God, then that frees you to not be frustrated or disappointed by your family, but instead to go love and serve your family. Now listen, some of you guys are probably thinking, hey, Pastor Grant must be having some family issues at home. He's kind of not really talking very highly of his biological family. I know they've got a newborn, no one's sleeping well. He's probably just got some things he's working through right now, okay? Uh, Listen, let me clarify some things. I love my family, all right? The family is a gift. Family is a blessing from the Lord. Being a husband to Brit, being a father to all those boys, that is a blessing and that is a gift that God has given me in my life. So don't mishear me. Our biological families are blessings and they are gifts to us. Our individual families are beautiful gifts from the Lord. But, but we must know as a Christian, you are now a part of a forever family. And while we're here on earth, we do enjoy these individual family relationships. But we are ultimately being prepared for eternity with God, our true father and our brothers and sisters who have been adopted into a family. And it's going to be a family that will not disappoint. It's a family that will not fail. It will not abandon us. And it will not abuse or neglect us. It is a family that we long for. And get this, it's a family we get a taste of when we gather as the church. We long for that forever family, right? Our families somehow kind of fall short of that, can disappoint us in that. We're longing for this forever family, being a child of God. And when we gather as the church, we get a little taste of what that is like. And in our passage, Jesus redefines who our ultimate family is. He's redirecting our attention to our forever family. And now let's look back at our passage as to what was accomplished by Christ to create this family. Look back at verse 22. And we'll talk through a couple other things as well. So Mark 3, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Okay, his family thinks he's crazy, and now the religious leaders of the day are going to take it a step further, and they're going to say that Jesus is essentially being empowered by the enemy, by Satan. And at this point, the scribes and the Pharisees, they can't deny the miraculous power that Jesus has. I mean, they're amongst the crowd. They're witnessing these miracles. They're witnessing, you know, the teaching and preaching he's doing. He's, he's restoring uh, those that are paralyzed. He's casting out demons. And now the religious leaders, they're becoming jealous of the crowds that he's attracting and the attention that, excuse me, the attention that he's getting. And the things that Jesus is doing, they can't deny that, hey, something miraculous is happening here. So now their strategy to take down Jesus is not to deny that he has power, it's to deny the source of his power. Instead of recognizing that he was performing these miracles by the power of God, they say, nope, he must be empowered by the enemy. He must be possessed by a demon. And Jesus answers them then with two parables. Okay, this is his response to this accusation. And next, in the next few weeks, as we go through the book of Mark, we're going to be teaching through some parables. So it'll be fun. It's parable time in the book of Mark, okay? Um, so here's the religious leaders. They accuse him of doing this miraculous power, these miraculous signs and wonders by the power of the enemy. And Jesus answers them with this. First, verse 23. 
And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Well, he first uses logic and reasoning to answer this accusation against him. He says, hey, would Satan cast out Satan? Would a demon cast out demon? I mean, if the enemy is battling against himself, that's not going to stand very long, right? A house divided against itself will not stand. Probably a phrase that's well known to you. It makes sense, right? It's a, it's a logical, it's a reasonable answer. Which let me point out, when defending truth, you can typically respond with logic and reason. When defending truth, you can typically respond with logic and reason. Church, we have a, we have a reasonable faith. We do. We have a reasonable faith. Now, no doubt, we do believe some miraculous and supernatural things. We do. We believe God spoke the world into existence. We believe he came to earth in the form of a man. We believe that he died a substitutionary death on a cross. And we believe three days later he rose from the dead. I mean, those are some miraculous and supernatural things we do believe. But there are miraculous and supernatural things that we observe every day. From the sun rising to the sun setting to the infinite just vastness of the galaxy and the universe to the intricacies of a cell. I mean, there are some miraculous things we observe every day. And ultimately, we have a reasonable faith. We can defend truth with logic and reason. But here's the issue that we have to deal with today as we engage our culture, okay? This is the issue we have to deal with. People that think logically and reasonably are an endangered species. There's less and less of them, right? There's the people that think logically and reasonably are an endangered species. Schools in general do not teach logic or reason anymore. And in general, we're not teaching our kids critical thinking skills. We're not teaching them logic and reason. And so we live in a day and age where information is all around us. We are continually getting informed. Knowledge is there for the taking. But we are losing the ability to think for ourselves. We're losing the ability to to use some critical thinking skills. And therefore, we are quickly becoming a society A society of people that are full of knowledge but lack any wisdom. We are full of knowledge but we lack any wisdom. We are given information endlessly without the ability to process it and think through things and reason things and come to logical conclusions. But church, we have a reasonable faith. Parents, teach your kids logic and reason. We, we have, that shouldn't scare us, we have a reasonable faith. It's logic and reason that would lead someone to conclude that creation must have a creator. That if there is evil in the world, there must be such a thing as good. That if there are lies, then there must be such a thing as truth. And so Jesus does some logic jujitsu on the scribes here, and then he answers with another parable. Verse 27, he says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. 
Okay, here Jesus switches gears a little bit. He's already made his point that, hey, his power is not from Satan. That just doesn't make sense. Why would Satan be against Satan? But his power is from God. And then he says, actually, actually what I'm doing is I'm binding and disarming the enemy in order to rescue my people. He's binding the strong man to rescue his people. Colossians 1.13 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus is not empowered by Satan, but instead through his life, death, and resurrection, he has bound the enemy. He has disarmed the enemy, and he has rescued his people from sin's penalty and from sin's power. Church, the reason we can enjoy adoption as into God's family, as sons and daughters, the reason we can enjoy it is because of the loving and sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and to release us from the power of sin so that we might no longer live as orphans or slaves, but that we might live as free sons and daughters of the king. Sons and daughters who have been accepted and forgiven. Look now at verse 28, Mark 3, 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. In this passage, we come across a very misunderstood and confusing verse, okay? This is what is commonly known as the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin, okay? So let's talk a little bit. Anytime you come across something, you talk, come across someone talking about an unforgivable sin, you probably want to pay attention to that one, okay? I mean, I could rattle off a bunch of commandments that you could be spacing out to, but when I'm going to say the one that's unforgivable or unpardonable or eternal, you should probably pay attention, okay? So if I've lost you, come back to me, okay? Verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Let's try to understand this a little bit, okay? Now, first, we don't use the word blasphemy very often, probably because in order to say it, we automatically have to spit on whoever we're talking to or anyone in the first two rows, right? Uh, Blasphemy, it's just not a word we say very often, but what blasphemy means is it means to slander or defame. It means to slander or defame, and and most specifically, to slander, defame, or speak against God. That's what the word blasphemy means, to speak against God, to slander, defame, speak against God. And our verse says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Now, this verse has given Christians everywhere panic attacks, okay? Because at first read, if you're like me, you're just like thinking back through your life. Okay, have I ever blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, you know? Thinking back to when you were 10 years old, you made a joke about the Holy Spirit, calling him the third wheel, the Trinity, calling him the charismatic cousin. I don't know what you said about the Holy Spirit, but let's, let's talk through some of those anxieties, okay? Because at first read, we can go into panic mode like, have I committed an unforgivable sin at some point in my life, okay? 
let me try to, try to calm and we'll work through those anxieties together. We'll do some deep breathing exercises after the service if we haven't fleshed all this out, okay? Well, we need to understand this in the context of the passage, okay? Remember, Jesus is answering the scribes. He's answering the scribes who have seen the miracles he's performing. They see the power of the Holy Spirit, but they are contributing the Spirit's work to the power of Satan. They are essentially seeing a good, they're seeing the Spirit of God work for good, and they're calling it evil. They are seeing good, and they are calling it evil. They are ultimately resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. So the unforgivable sin for us today is therefore this, okay? It is when a person continually and persistently resists the work of the Spirit in their life. It is the person who refuses the grace of adoption that God provides and instead wants to make the team themselves. Okay, the unforgivable sin today is continually and persistently not repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ. And if someone persists in this their whole life, if they persist in unrepentance and unbelief their entire life to the point of death, then they have committed an eternal sin and there will be no forgiveness. So church, if you're, if you're worried or anxious, if you've committed this sin, let me assure you, you haven't, okay? Just that anxiety about wondering if you have reveals a softness of heart that is responding to the Spirit's conviction, okay? But this should give us a sense of urgency in pleading with people to put their faith in Christ. Because the Bible doesn't teach universalism. The Bible doesn't teach that everyone's going to be saved. And I know that's not politically correct, but it is theologically correct. The Bible doesn't teach this idea of purgatory, where there will be a chance for everyone after death for repentance and faith. But as long as God has a person on, here on earth, we must with love and urgency plead with them to, to turn from their sin and to trust in Christ. This should give us a sense of urgency, church, to go and take the good news of the gospel, to encourage people to turn to Christ. Do not resist the working of the Spirit on your life. Now, don't miss this. We can get so focused on this unforgivable sin that we miss this beautiful and glorious verse right before it. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, we already know the warning of rejecting the Spirit and not trusting Christ, right? We know that warning. We already know that there will be those that don't turn to Christ at some point. But look how beautiful this is. For those who do, for those whose confidence is in Christ and Christ alone, all sins will be forgiven. For those whose confidence is in Christ and Christ alone, all sins will be forgiven. All sins. All sins. And some of you, some of you think that Christ forgave some of your sins, but there are still others that you still got to beat yourself up about. There are still others that you can't forgive yourself about. 
You need to know for those in Christ, all sins have been forgiven. And that's not me saying it. That's Jesus saying it. And Jesus knows you way better than I know you. He knows you better than anyone knows you. He knows the sins you've committed behind closed doors. He knows the sins that you've committed in your thought life. He knows the sins you still struggle with. And he knows the sins you will commit in the future. He knows all of that, and yet he has set his affections upon you. And he has bound the enemy so that you would be free. He died so that you wouldn't have to, and he rose so that you could live. I mean, can you fathom the goodness of a God like that? He's a good God. A God who doesn't hold tryouts, he doesn't hold auditions, and he doesn't hold interviews to see who he wants to be a part of his family. But no, it is a God who went to those who had rebelled against him, and instead of pouring out wrath on them, he has now poured out his favor. He has poured out his affection, his love, his grace, his mercy, his power, his faithfulness. And no longer will you be called an orphan or a rebel, but now you will be called a child of God. Praise God, yeah. Come on now. No longer will you be called a sinner. Now you will be called a saint. And no longer will you be called an orphan, but now you are sons and daughters of the king. Church, whatever experience you've had with your family, whether it be good or bad or complicated, whether it's been fulfilling or disappointing, you need to know that there is an everlasting family. There is an everlasting family where you can find forgiveness and acceptance. And if you have put your faith in Christ, you have been adopted into this forever family. It's a family that even the best families here on earth cannot even come close to comparing to. And when we gather as a church, we get a taste of that family. But listen, the, t the temptation, the temptation in our culture is to just focus on our individual families. This is what, as a church, we are battling against, to focus, just focus in on our individual families. Because, listen, we are not just a collection of individual families. We're not. We are the gathering of a completely new family. And there's a difference there, okay? We're not just a collection of individual families who just happen to meet here on Sunday morning. We are the gathering of a completely new family. And while we should not neglect our individual families or the responsibilities we have to them, there is even a greater and everlasting family that we can enjoy being a part of. And so, hey, Sunday morning, you could probably have better family time with your individual family if you just stayed home in your PJs, right, and had some family worship at home. And that's, that's a good thing. You should be doing that throughout the week. But on Sundays, on the Lord's Day, we gather together and celebrate our ultimate family, our new family that we're a part of. When we gather as the church, we gather as the family of God, sons and daughters of the king. And this misunderstanding of family has led many churches to unknowingly and inadvertently isolate single people or isolate people without children or isolate people in a different season of life than the majority. 
When we speak of being a husband or a wife or a father or a mother, when we speak of those things as being the ultimate thing and the purpose in our life, when we do that, we are committing idolatry in our heart, but we are also hurting our single brothers and sisters. We are making them feel as if to be a single Christian is to be a JV Christian, which is not true. When we make being a mother or being a father the ultimate thing for our purpose and goal in life, when we do that, not only are we committing idolatry, but we are making our brothers and sisters without children feel as if to be a Christian without children is to be a second-tier Christian. And church, shame on us if we have been this way or we ever become that way. We must Resist the urge to isolate ourselves and our families from one another and instead embrace our adoption as the family of God. And I believe when we start embracing being a part of the family of God and truly seeing one another as family, truly seeing one another as brothers and sisters, then I believe when we gather, we won't just sit as individual families. I believe we won't just reach out to people that are in the same season of life we're in. I believe we'll invite people over to our house for meals that aren't just exactly like us. Understanding adoption as sons and daughters will allow community to flourish where we long to be with our forever family on Sunday morning. We long to gather in small groups in our city groups with our forever family. We long to meet up with our forever family for coffee in the early morning and dinner in the evenings. We are not a collection of individual families. We are the new family of God. And as we conclude this morning, I do want to pray and ask that God would awaken us to this beautiful doctrine of adoption. And that we would continue to see true community flourish here. But I will also pray that as individuals, we would not rest. We would not rest in the identity of our biological family. But instead, we would rest in the identity of our forever family as children of God. Because you see, we all fail our biological families. You've all failed your family at times, and your families have failed you. And many times, if you're like me, I mean, I can beat myself up because of my failings and how I've disappointed or let down my family, and I'm sure you can relate to this. At times, I mean, at times I feel like a lousy father. At times, I feel like a failure as a husband. At times, I feel like an unloving brother. At times, I feel like an unfaithful son. And Jackson, our oldest son, he's five, and we've been watching uh, basketball lately, and uh, he's been getting really into it. And he's noticed that, that the basketball players, you know, they have last names on the back of their jerseys. And he's getting pretty good at reading, so he's reading their last name. But then he asks the question, he says, hey, Dad, what's his real name? Like, what's, what's his real name? What he means is what's his first name, okay? That's what he, so if he comes up to you and asks what your real name is, that's, that's what he means, all right? He's wanting to know what your first name is, but that question was over and over again. What is your real name? Because church, I think we forget what our real name is. Many times the enemy will come and will remind you of the failings of your family. The enemy, who's also called the accuser, 
he will come and accuse and will, will remind you of all your failings and all your sin in your family. Your failings and sin that have been done against you and failings and sin that you have done to your family. He's going to bring those to mind. He will remind you of how you failed your family and how your family failed you. And when he does that, you will be tempted to think that your name is Failing Father. You will be tempted to think that your name is Inadequate Mother. You'll be tempted to think that your name is Neglected Son or Abandoned Daughter. You might think your name is Second Class Single or Rebellious Child or Overlooked Grandparent. But church, I hope in those times when you feel the failings of family here on earth, I will pray that the Spirit prompts you with Jackson's question or a brother and sister will ask you Jackson's question, what's your real name? Yeah, I know you've failed your family, your family has failed you, but what is your real name? Because church, your real name is not the name your family gave you. And your real name is not based on your failings or your accomplishments. You are not ultimately a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, single, or a grandparent. No, Jesus is in the business of giving new names, and he now calls you a child of God. You are sons and daughters of the king. So may we live in the fullness of joy knowing that we have been accepted and adopted into the forever family of God. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that as we've heard your word, that it would take root in our hearts, that it would produce fruit in our lives. God, I ask that community would just continue to flourish here amongst this people, God, that we would continue to see ourselves as a forever family, brothers and sisters united in our faith in you. I ask that you would continue to, to have us, God, reach outside of our comfort zones, welcome in those people that aren't in the same season of life, welcome in people that aren't, don't look exactly like us, God. May we be a welcoming people into, as we welcome people into your family. And God, I ask that as we go out from here, if any would be tempted to be discouraged or despair by the failings of their family, that they would know and rest. That they would know and rest in the fact that their identity and their acceptance and their purpose and their security, God, is ultimately in you and in being a child of God. May we not quickly forget this. May it go with us throughout the week. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.